You need more than just technology to make a lasting change in this world. And that's why Neon One offers a nonprofit platform that's designed to grow with you, providing software and resources that help nonprofit professionals make their connections that matter. Connections with their peers, connections with their supporters, and connections with their mission. Learn how Neon One makes it easy to design amazing generosity experiences by visiting neonone.com slash weareforgood. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Becky, what's happening? You know what I like, John? What is that? I really like CEOs who are growth mindset, brilliant, and so kind. I'm so glad we oh have that guest in the house today. Is that amazing yeah. or what? Well, I thought you were going to go, you know, we have been wanting to talk about capacity building. We get this question a, a lot. And right before this, we were saying, we've got a guy for that. And the guy is in the <laughs> house to come bring us all the goods. And you're right. He is kind of like, all the things all in one package. So it is a huge delight to have Brian Joseph in our house today. He's the co-founder and co-CEO of RevGen Group. They're a social enterprise dedicated to the empowerment of nonprofit leaders and the organizations they serve. And get this, they do a lot of things in the ethos that We Are For Good does, coming at it from the heart of a teacher in community. They have these revenue capacity building workshops that have facilitated peer groups and this membership that's in community. And what they do is they arm social sector leaders with the knowledge, resources, and support to amplify their impact and fuel the greater good. He has just had this incredible career. He has served in all these different leadership roles and he has got the pedigree you know, that you would expect, just the casual executive MBA with honors from SMU. He's just down the street from us in Dallas, a really long street, let's be clear, <laughs> from Oklahoma City. <laughs> but he is going to thread a lot of his experiences and just his professional life into this conversation today to speak to us, like, how do we do this? How do we do the work in our own organizations and come alive as a culture in the process? So Brian Joseph, get into this house. It is a delight to have you, my friend. Thank you both for having me. When, when you first started to describe this person coming in, I was looking around. I'm like, we got another guest joining us. Who is this? <laughs> nope. Here's your mirror. You're here behind door number one. <laughs> well, Brian, it. you know, I gave the briefest of intro about your incredible journey. I wonder if you'd take us a little bit into your story. Like what were some of the key hallmarks that led you into this work today? Yeah, you know, that's a great question, John. I mean, I think it's like all of us. We get incredibly lucky at different stages of our career. And I don't think some people wake up and they're like, when I go to college, I'm going to do this. And mine was just a lot of random twists and turns that I won't bore you with. But the inflection point for me was finding business and then having a mentor who took an interest in me. And I met him at a stage of his career where he had built and scaled a lot of companies. Um, his secret sauce was always around uh, scaling national sales organizations. And he had done that in the insurance industry, telecom, etc. And for some reason, he took an interest in this kid and you know put me in charge of companies and taught me all this incredible things. And he always used to say to me, you know, Brian, I'm teaching you how to build the system. And build the system is different than operating the system when you go inside of an organization. I'll never forget that. And it's just always stuck with me. And uh, we just had conversations around success and significance. So how I left the for-profit world and got into philanthropy was just a, a lot of unfortunate circumstances, but 
you know, everything happens for a reason. So here we are. Yeah, I, thank you for that background. I, I cannot underscore enough how important it is to have mentors in our life that set us on that path. I love that you created space for him. And just having your sort of mindset, an entrepreneurial mindset in this conversation, I think is going to be a real hallmark for the community. And we want to talk about these principles of building and scaling organizations. And you have this great quote that you learn the fundamental principles of building and scaling the very companies that you were later put in charge to lead. And I want you to talk to us about this and kind of tone set this conversation with some of the principles of building and scaling organizations that you've discovered in your career. It's a great question, Becky. And I think there's so many things that go with that, right? I mean, there's right? people, there's luck, there's industry, there's everything else. But I think one of the core philosophies that we've always, I've always had with me that, again, my mentor put into me was, regardless of the organization, nothing happens until something is sold. Right. And, and mm. we use that term in the for-profit space. I know sometimes in the nonprofit space, we're like, oh, are we selling? Yes, I know if you have an earned component, we are. But in the same instance, it's creating a customer. Right. Peter Drucker talks about that. The purpose of the business is not to make a profit or to do this, is to create a customer. And I think when we do that, that's a fundamental principle of how do we then build an organization, our culture and our people to keep that in mind. The old adage, no money, no mission. Right. So for nonprofits, as we think about the work that we're doing, revenue is and I use revenue agnostically contributive, government uh, earned. Uh, revenue is the force that is always the thing that we're struggling to have enough of, the scarcity of it, and how do we do things and we don't get people, the, the human resources. But if we can actually focus on some fundamentals and start to really lean into that, can we generate the revenue that actually propels the organization and the impact forward? So by focusing on the revenue side of things, you know, first actually drives the impact side of things in a second. But it's just one of the core principles that has always stuck with me. Again, it doesn't matter what the, the focus of the organization is. Revenue is a is a revenue first is a thing that drives everything else, right? We don't need any, we don't need CEOs, we don't need accountants, we don't need anything until we actually have a customer. I mean, what tone setting and way to go naming the company, uh, Revgen. Because <laughs> I think you like kind of center. Yeah, I mean, the branding mind over here really appreciates that. But I also think it's interesting you use the word force because I do think there's like an energy component of what revenue and all of its different sources can mean to our organizations. And so I wonder if, you know, we're in startup hustle over here. And so while we have the brain of, of growing up in the nonprofit space over our careers of the last 15, 20 years, Becky and I and Julie are now in the very much the startup mode. And they're same idea. It's like no money, no mission. So I wonder if you would kind of take some of these startup mentalities that you know, are maybe on the for-profit side and how can we apply those and what nonprofits can take away from that too? You know, I think the, one of the things is I, I just used this yesterday. We were having a conversation internally. Uh, we have an innovation lab that we're putting in place this year. Ooh. And, I, you know, it's the fail fast, right? And, and fail, I have a friend of mine who calls fail as an acronym, right? Forward advances in learning. But used, uh, I think it was Reed Hoffman from Netflix that made the comment, if you're not embarrassed by your first prototype, you're moving too slow. Right, and yes. I, think, I love that. <laughs> it's a struggle for the designer because I want things to look a certain way, but it's so true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Because you want it to be perfect, you want it to work, and this. And I think fear too often drives us to not move fast enough to try things and do stuff. And I and I understand in our space, especially when we take donations, we don't want to. We want to be mindful, and we want to use this and be good stewards of those funds, but. In startup mode, and as entrepreneurs, we have to be able to have the flexibility and the, and the freedom to fail. And 
you know, it's not a stigma to carry with us. It just means we learned something, right? There's no crystal ball. There's no thing that we can look at and say, here's the perfect path because what we think it is, we know is going to be dynamic and it's going to take all kinds of hard turns. But I think having that drive towards just how do I test things and try things and, and keep the customer's perspective in mind, right? And a customer, again, could be a donor. It could be if you're serving kids in a school, it's how do I keep them and the schools and the principals, just all the different constituents along the way in line. And how do I keep that as a focus? But the thing that I don't think we talk about with entrepreneurship uh, enough is how incredibly lonely and tough that it can be as well. Mm. And I think that that's something, you know, we have movies, we have Silicon Valley and we glamorize entrepreneurship and we're like, yes, it's going to be awesome. And then we don't tell the story about the day in, day out of just, you know, the grind and the, and the beat down that happens and how do we actually continue to re-energize and be resilient and continue to move forward. And I think those are the things that just need some more highlights. Because <laughs> I think for, for so often, especially in our nonprofit space, our leaders are amazing. These entrepreneurs, the social entrepreneurs that create stuff. And when you hear their stories, it's just like, okay, let's keep doing this. We're, 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 we're trying to make some change. Thank you for just calling it out. Because I will say that we reflect all of that. The bruising that comes <laughs> yeah. from a startup, the loneliness, <laughs> but the, also the joy that comes from doing this work. And, you know, we're seeing just this evolution happening in the sector right now. And we just have this unique vantage point as we sit in these chairs and have these conversations where the sector is shifting now more than ever. And the way that we're looking at how we work and the ways that we connect. And I, I want to talk to you about capacity building because this has been such a heavy topic in our community as the people who have, they're still in their nonprofits. Several people have left, several people have taken new jobs and there's this absorption of other duties and those kinds of things. And nonprofit professionals are looking at us saying, I love the work. I believe called, like I'm called to this mission, but my gosh, I am just working on the margins. So talk to us about some of the root causes and that nonprofits are facing, those revenue challenges that are making capacity building so difficult for us. Yeah, great question. And, you know, a couple of things I'll talk about to this, because I think there's some things in our space so I want to come back to that are important for us to call out. And I think that as leaders together, we all need to help drive some change. But so in capacity building, we focus on revenue generation because again, if you look at it for the top five challenges, it's the thing that we constantly see as far as a, a major hindrance for nonprofits to do the great work. And I get it. A lot of times we'll hear nonprofits say, but I'm doing great work and I'm doing, I'm serving a need and I shouldn't have to do this. But the fact of the matter is we do. We need to generate revenue. We need to build those muscles internally. So when I think about capacity building, especially around the revenue generation piece, it's so critically important to provide that space and everything else. When we talk about root causes at RevGen, the thing that we, we have a framework that we use of a house. So when I looked at the uh, sector as a whole and did a landscape analysis when we first started this work but I, to try to train, right? Because going in as a practitioner is one thing, but then when you're trying to teach others to take these skill sets and this mindset that they can then go forward with and, and continue to iterate on, it's a different aspect. But when we looked at it, what we found was the roof of the house tends to be have a lot of focus around it. And it has to, it's what we define as revenue skill sets. So it's my individual day-to-day frontline fundraisers. How do I cultivate my donors? How do I steward the relationship? How do I move them through the pipeline to get them to actually want to donate to our cause? It's where the rubber meets the road. It's critically important and it's, and it's really, really needed in our space. And there's a lot of tools out there. Webinars, consultants, everything. There's a lot, there's a lot of space out there. But you don't start building the house at the roof. The walls of the house, when we first started RevGen, we were a consulting firm. And it's where we got hired. And 
candidly, that's where a lot of the consulting world does live, about 20% of the solutions, maybe 30, uh, which is we define the walls of the house as revenue management. It's my management team that runs the, you know, and engages the frontline fundraisers, the day-to-day fundraisers. And it's things like what CRM system should I be using? How do I build a training program? How should I be interviewing for these things? How do I build my reporting for my team versus my board? All kinds of things from a management perspective that are really important. Again, keeps the, 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 the house moving, keeps the day-to-day activities going in the right direction. But again, you don't start building the house there. In my opinion, what was fundamentally missing was that foundation, that revenue infrastructure is what we call it. And it's really five key elements. And it's not just the revenue team's responsibility to put these in place. This goes back to the principles of that, right? This is the principles where my mentor taught me. He's like, this is about building the system. And the five elements that we try to get nonprofits to focus on is first, identifying your revenue model. Right? Where's your money coming from today? Where do you want it to come from in the next one to three years? Tactical, actionable. And it's things like recognizing who owns the relationships. Right? Are we actually trying to mitigate away from the founder who's very dynamic, et cetera? So the funders have other relationships with other people. Is it, do you, do you separate operating capital from, from uh, one-time capital? Meaning, you know, I have a funder who wants to see growth, but they're only going to be there for a period of time. How am I going to replace that with ongoing operating? A lot of questions that we dig into on the revenue model. And we try to get them to apply a, an acronym that we call PIES. Preserve what you do well. Can you increase that before you expand? And then what can you stop doing? Because we have, we're limited by resources. So we focus on revenue model and trying to get the leadership team aligned. So when we, we teach this, we always try to ask, when you're making strategic decisions for the organization, who sits around the table? Mm. Well, that's our executive director. That's our head of program, the head of revenue operations. The same people that we want to be talking about revenue. Then This is not just send the development team and they'll come back and have these. This is exactly the, the executive team we have to have in place aligned. So then the, the development team back to the walls can go back and make sure the, the roof can get out there and do the thing that needs to be done. So we start with revenue model. We then go into the second element, which is revenue strategy. What are the people, processes, and systems I need in place to actually execute on the revenue model that I just got done identifying? And it builds. You constantly have to iterate. The third element is then when I look at my revenue strategy, what skill sets do I need on the team, right? If I'm going to have a major gifts or if I'm going to do an earned component or if I'm going to do an event or what have you, those all take different skill sets. And what skill sets do I need? Then how do I overlay my team to say, here's where we're strong, here's where we're weak, here's how we actually do that from an organizational design perspective. The fourth element is very much a financial exercise we call resource allocation. And it's to try to take the organization and say, when 100 pennies come in the door, how do you allocate that to program? I get it. We're mission-driven, right? We want to actually see the impact in the world. But we still have to allocate some of those pennies to operations. We need IT. We need HR. We need all those fun things. And our revenue team. Because if we don't allocate enough financial resources, we won't have the human resources, back to org design, to execute against the revenue strategy to see the revenue model shift. And then we really want them to also break down and look at that resource allocation by revenue stream. What does it actually cost you to bring in a dollar by revenue stream? Because it's not always equal, right? What it costs me to actually run an event versus what does it cost me for major gifts, applying all the costs, full costs, both people and, and other expenses that go with it. So really try to define what the gross margin is and make uh, choices around that. And then last but not least is revenue culture. I always tell organizations, you have a revenue culture, whether you know it or not. Yep. It's just, are you intentional about it? And how do we, and what I mean by that is really, how do we draw a line of sight between our revenue team and our program team. Because again, we focus so much on the program. We sometimes say, well, revenue is the icky stuff. Y'all just go raise the money. But that's really hard. I can't disconnect the two. So how do we create a culture that celebrates it, that realizes that we're all on the same team? And again, no money, no mission. So how do we empower and put a seat at the table and not just arbitrarily say, go do these things? 
What we have found is those five elements gives a leadership team a common framework, a common language, and then giving them the dedicated time to dig in really sets the stage for a solid foundation. Again, so then my day-to-day uh, revenue team can put in solid walls to execute on the, on the roof. And that really starts to build the full framework. And for us, when I talk about root causes, I'll, I'll share an example of that, which is we get organizations that used to come to us and they say, hey, Brian, help us because we're like everybody else. We're turning over our development director every 16 to 18 months. And we think we need to be better at interviewing. I'm like, okay, well, let's talk about that. So we look at the interviewing process and they're really robust. They're doing personality analysis. They have professional recruiters are paying to help them. I mean, it's, it's robust. And I'm like, you're actually really good at recruiting. What could be the issue though, are we actually recruiting the right people? And here's what I mean by that. You hired a major gifts officer who had a stellar resume, who really identified with your organization. But when they got in here, you asked them to get and go build systems and start an individual giving campaign and to run an event, none of which were their skill sets. <laughs> or they got yeah. in here and they're really passionate and you put them on an island because your revenue culture doesn't exist and you never included them in the strategic decisions. You never included them in the programmatic stuff and they're forced and they're like, I'm not, I'm not even part of the team. Oh my gosh, so, I've seen this happen, know, Brian. Right? I'm envisioning people. It's life. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the whole point. So when we try to talk about these things, it's, it's how do we do that? And it's, and it's fun. Like I have a, <laughs> a, a story of one group that came up to me when they'd done the resource allocation piece um, on the, on the training and their CEO came up to me and she said, she goes, Brian, you're not going to believe this. She goes, we just went through our model and we realized we spend 60% of our staff time raising 5% of our revenue. And it's the 5% we all hate. If we just <laughs> stop doing that, like how much time we have? And I'm like, right. And they'd never looked at it that way. So it's just these type wow. of things, these principles that, and, and the biggest thing for me is we live in dynamic environments. Like Becky, what you said when we started, right? The, the, the COVID survivors, et cetera. But before then, we had the 2008 financial meltdown. Yep. Right? Do we remember how tough those Ugh. years were for nonprofits? There's always dynamic situations. And even when the markets are good and the economy is good, you could have it where you lose a major funder or you have something that happens with your program that doesn't have the efficacy it needs. There's always things. So for me, it's like, again, how do we teach the the team inside these nonprofits to have these muscles, to actually to exercise these muscles. So they have the revenue know how to continue to, to flex and to, to navigate a dynamic market. And the example I always give on that is just like, you know, trying to live a healthy lifestyle. I don't eat a salad once and say, okay, I had my spinach salad. Never have to do that again. I don't go to the gym <laughs> once and be like, woohoo, I'm, I'm got cardio for life. Now it's a constant <laughs> vigilance, right? Like every day choices I make, Revenue and capacity building is no different. I told you we found our guy. I was going to say, I'm <laughs> looking at your face, John, and I can I see how geeked out you are right now. Well, I just think I'm so happy because like, I feel like this conversation is answering what the community has been asking for, this type of direct guidance. And I think, you know, to go back and replay is this is going to be a gift, you know, to just be able to sit with kind of this strategy. But I, I want to speak specifically to the organization that's listening because this is a great place if you're starting, you're like, okay, I can build this foundation right. But a lot of us find ourselves inside, oh, I'm sitting in a 100-year-old house right now. So let's talk about our foundation right here. <laughs> if you need to fix that, what does that look like? And, and what are some of the you know, conversations look like to say, man, we need to go back to basics and talk about these core things, of, but everything's built on. What does it look like for a team to start in, you know, entering into a conversation like that? I, I think, John, it's like, yeah, I think they start. And I think that's the thing is there's no one thing 
right? When it comes to capacity building in general, when it comes to revenue in general, there's no one thing. It's back to the common common language, common framework, and then again, dedicated time to be intentional about it. We, we have a cartoon that we use in some of our trainings and it literally says, okay, and there's a bunch of people sitting around a, a conference table and the guy looks at his watch and he says, okay, there's 10 minutes left. Let's do revenue strategy, right? It's like, <laughs> oh, because geez. we always want to focus on program. And I get it. It's, it's the reason why we exist. Whatever your mission is, if it's you know, education, if it's literacy, if it's poverty, if it's environment, if it's trafficking, it, there's a host of things that are needed. And when you talk to the, the leaders, but when it comes to revenue, it's, it is scary. It's hard. It's all those things, but it becomes less scary, less hard, less everything. The more in, uh, intentional you are about just leaning into it and getting off the hamster wheel. And I know that's easy to say. And we say that all the time. It's like, Oh, just get off the hamster wheel. It's like, yeah, but how do I do that? I'm trying to make payroll. I got less than 60 days of cash in my, in my bank account. So how do I do that? And it's really trying to get the leadership team. You don't have to do it alone, Right. You can actually step back. How do we start to put a plan in place? How do we make some forced decisions? How do we capture our assumptions of what we think is going to happen and then pressure test that so we can slowly start to, to migrate away to make some changes? And I think that's the biggest thing is just start. And then, again, challenge each other in a, in a productive way. The example I'll share with that is when you talk about just starting, it's I sat down with a nonprofit leader. This is, this is actually right after the 2008 financial collapse. So it's about 2010. And they had... They're incubated inside of a foundation and the foundation came to them and said, in two years, we're not going to fund you at all. We're moving in a different direction. So they have basically 90% of their revenue that's going to go away in 24 months. As you can imagine, that creates a little anxiety. So we all identify with this. And I sat down with their executive director and she had some ideas and she wanted to lean into, could I create an earned revenue strategy? And they, they had, they served schools. Uh, so you're talking elementary schools. And we talked about this and I said, you're doing the right things because you're trying to figure out how do I go forward with both fundraising? Do I want to do an earned component, et cetera? But let's talk about this. And they had a model that we, as we talked about it, what we started with was let's capture some assumptions. First of all, I said, I think an earned component with school districts were too early. So we're literally two years after 2008, which means property taxes were lower, which means schools were struggling, which means we're going to have a really uphill battle to try to get any earned revenue. And we're going to waste a lot of energy and effort how do, we, how do we get that ready? Push pause. And maybe in two years, we start that. We're, we're laying the groundwork in between on that. But what can we do between now and then? Because again, we have this money that's going literally going away in 24 months. And what we looked at when we looked at models, we came up with is they had an experience that they could actually run, very similar to Habitat for Humanity. That created a new revenue model. It was actually taking somebody else's playbook and saying, we can apply it. And they started to lean into that. And they started to charge for this experience. And today, they have their, you know, fast forward a decade, they have scaled uh, in multiple cities and regions throughout the country. A third of their revenue comes from that corporate engagement where they charge for an experience. A third of their revenue now does come from schools that pay for their, their services. And a third is philanthropy. But it's the intentionality to just start. We had no idea if it would work when we started, but we had a really good assumption and we could look at other models that we could emulate because we weren't trying to create anything new. Um, and we just started to, to move forward. But the whole thing was just start, right? Not sit there and bury our heads in the sand, not to go back to the foundation to say, could you change your mind and just stay with us for, you know, like, because that's, they've made their decision too. Now we have to just confront the brutal facts to quote Jim Collins and move forward. Are you or your organization exploring your options or planning a tech purchase this year? Whether it's a new CRM system, digital ads, or marketing support, we'd love to introduce you to some of our trusted friends in the sector who are delivering some of the most innovative and easy-to-use tech in the sector. 
Not only does this help our hearts know that our We Are For Good friends are getting that VIP experience in this journey, but your referral helps us power more free content into this good community. So if you're considering your options or you just need a starting place, our team is here to help. Connect with us. Visit weareforgood.com slash refer or even just shoot us a DM. That's weareforgood.com slash refer. Taking a quick pause from today's episode to thank our sponsor, who also happens to be one of our favorite companies, Virtuous. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you both see and activate donors at every level, and Virtuous is the platform to help you do just that. It's so much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous helps charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, volunteer management, and online giving, and we love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sounds like Virtuous might be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. I thank you for sharing that because my heart is back at a like resting heartbeat now that this organization has a diversified revenue strategy. Because if you have all your eggs 90% of your eggs in one basket, like that's a scary place to be in when you are specifically in a recession or looking at what we're seeing in the economy and in the world right now. So thanks for that great example. We just had this conversation around retention and sustainability this year. And I think there's a lot of focus on that. You wrote a really brilliant blog post that was about nonprofit humans and financial sustainability. Like how can we work toward sustainability within ourselves once we have that foundation built. We, we're all busy human beings. And I want you to talk about sort of that blog and what was the impetus behind that? Because I definitely think the nonprofit human at the end of this wants to have um, that peace a, a little bit and not feel like they're working on the margins, but we want to work toward that financial sustainability so we can dream, so we can take risks, so we can fail forward faster in the way that you're talking about. Love to get your thoughts on this. It's a great question, Becky. And I think this goes back to the earlier comments we're talking about our sector as a whole. So our mission when we started was financial sustainability. I think this is solvable in our, in my lifetime anyway, to drive out these skill sets to teach nonprofit leaders how to do this. Again, if I can learn it, anybody can learn it because I couldn't spell (laughs) revenue when I started business, right? Um, But it's what I've realized is we've gotten to the revenue side of things and the financial sustainability and the trainings that we put together is we will never have revenue for sustainability if we don't address the financial, uh, the uh, human sustainability. And what do I mean by that? So first of all, pre-COVID, 16 to 18 months is the average lifespan of a development director inside of a nonprofit across the country on average. doesn't matter what the issue focus is, et cetera. 16 to 18 months. I want us to wrap our heads around that. Imagine if I walked into Nike and said, every 16 to 18 months, your head of sales is going to be gone. It's just, it's crazy. And it's like, why? Like, what's the underpinning of that's causing that? And we've seen the studies. We saw Underdeveloped that came out in 2014, I think it was, that the Haas Junior Fund did. Loved the study. Talked all about fundraisers that were leaving, et cetera. Five years later, Chronicle of Philanthropy does the same, uh, similar study. Exact same results. 51% of fundraisers are going to leave their posts. 30-some percent of those are going to actually leave the sector altogether. We're hemorrhaging talent. And it's costing us tens of billions of dollars a year. And then when you think about the development director turnover, what does that also lead to? 
isolation and burnout. Isolation and burnout, yep. not only of our heads of, de- of development, who we often put on an island, back to the culture piece, but think of our executive directors. Our executive directors, I hire, I hire John. He's my, my development head. He's going to come in. He's going to rock it. He's in here. 18 months later, he's like, I'm out. Like, for whatever reason, he's gone. And I'm like, oh, right? That's not like I got a boat full of, of money. I still got to make payroll stuff back on my shoulders. And then the cycle repeats. And by the third time, I'm just so beaten down. I'm just burnt out. I can't talk about it because I'm you know, kind of isolated as the executive director. And I got to put a good face on for my staff, for my, my board members, for my funders, and for my constituents. But I'm just burnt out. So those two pieces of human sustainability, we can look at cross-sector studies from Harvard, et cetera, about the effects of burnout and isolation uh, on not only individuals, but also on the organization's effectiveness. So back to impact. And, and candidly, we need to talk about the individuals too and what we do for our nonprofit leaders. Like I just read a book that talked about how uh, isolation is worse than smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. Oh my gosh. Oh, it, the, the health effects that it has on our, on our leaders is massive. So when I looked at that, I said, we can't have financial sustainability of an organization to build those principles and do things if we don't address this other, these other big components. And I think some of the root causes that land underneath that is also just in our sector, how we view professional development, how we actually invest in our people. I think we're starting to see tenants of this rise up. I mean, pick up any recent articles, you're seeing this stuff about unionization. Why do workers unionize? Uh, because they often feel like they're neglected. When we look at our nonprofit leaders, we, we put them in a, this choice of, do I, do I serve my constituents? Do I spend this money to literally feed a child, to teach a child to read, to help a trafficking victim, or do I invest in me and my team? That's, a, that's an impossible no It's situation. impossible. With a hardwired right. human at yeah. the middle of it. <laughs> Who will yeah. sacrifice themselves and their time and every part of their mental health for it. Yes. Literally. And, and how do we change that narrative? And how do we get the funding community to then also offer up professional development dollars? Because I look at our for-profit counterparts and I asked a major corporation this. I'm like, how much do you all spend? I had their executive team and I was talking to them. And I said, how much do you all spend on yourselves for your professional development a year? I said, include when you go to a conference, the money you pay for that. And they're like, well, minimum, you know, $10,000 each, like the minimum, like, and that's, we'd probably spend more than that. I'm like, now I want you to think of the nonprofits that you serve on the boards of. And what do you think their professional development budget is? And one of them literally says, she goes, well, we just had this conversation. It was like 250 bucks a year. I'm like, do we see a problem? The disparity is unbelievable. It is truly unbelievable. Organizations are still made up of people. The impact is still made up of people, right? I mean, there's the the other study I like to quote on the the burnout is uh, predictive index did one at the beginning of 22. And And my numbers aren't exact here, but it's ballparkish. If a manager or leader is not burnt out, only 22%, I think it is, of the staff feels burnt out. And again, you can look at the downstream ramifications of effectiveness and productivity. But if a manager or leader is burnt out, over 70% of the staff feels the same way. I believe it. I believe and it too. I'm, I'm so glad we're talking about this. I mean, we burnout, uh, the World Health Organization added burnout to its list of occupational phenomena in 2019. I mean, this predates even COVID. This is the same year that Anthony Klotz was writing about this, this concept that would be coined the great resignation. And so I think we're sitting in that we are certainly feeling that within our community. I meet with someone in our community at least once every other week who is burnt out, who is experiencing incredible compassion fatigue, who's talking about leaving the sector and they just want help. 
help. They want support. They want to feel seen. And I just feel like, Brian, thank you for making the case for support for this, because I do think there has to be a business case made for this to have, you know, to to get funders on that side, to get our board members over to understanding. And I think conversations like this are helping move the needle immensely. And thank you for coming in. Yeah. Well, as part of, again, how do we change that narrative, right? How do we change mm-hmm. the narrative where we can quantify the ROI? Because that's what we're trying to actually, we're, we've commissioned a, a help on a measurement evaluation with Project Evident, and we're trying to lean into, can we actually quantify for these type of trainings, peer groups, et cetera, the, the return on investment? So again, it just makes a good business case. And then also talking to funders about if they have a separate pool of funds. So if you're going to give $100,000 or $500,000 or $1 million to a grantee, you also have a pool of funds that you hold separate and distinct to pay professional development providers directly. So it doesn't count against until we can kill this whole 20% or we now sometimes talk about 25% thing that if you spend anything more than that, which is crazy. And because at any stage right. of your organization, sometimes you should spend less, sometimes you spend more, but it's just yeah. how do you actually build a strong organization? We should be talking about outcomes and not about some arbitrary percentage of the of the budget. Well, I'm going to give space because we're talking about professional development. It's a huge passion of ours here and especially done in community. Like, And I think that's part of what getting to have access to these resources puts you in the room, puts you at the table with peers that you can have dialogue with. So I want, I know y'all center this. So I just want to give a second for you just to talk about why is that so important that y'all have centered peer groups in the way that you do this work and how does that change kind of the way we grow? So for, for me, it's again, looking at examples of what's already working. And when we look at peer groups in the for-profit space, our counterparts have it figured out. I mean, you have Vistage has been around for over 60 years for business owners, right? You have Tiger 21, which is for people who have a liquid net worth of over $10 million and they spend a day a a month. We have Chief, which is now for women uh, executives going up that's growing like mad. So when we looked at it, we said, okay, there's something to this. And can we create that space? Because we have a power dynamic in our sector. Right? So when I went out and asked nonprofit leaders, because they're the ones that asked for this in our training, they're like, Brian, we've never had this honest of conversations around revenue. How do we keep having them? I'm like, you know each other, get together. And it took a, a nonprofit leader by the name of Bob who said, stop being like everybody else. And it took me back. And I said, what do you mean, Bob? He goes, free is not always better. And I'm already overworked and under-resourced. So yes, I can get together with my peers. We can try to grab a beer. We can try to grab coffee. It's going to happen two or three times. And then it's going to go on forever. We may connect again at the conference, but it's not consistent. I actually need consistency, Brian. And I actually need it also where I can have a candid conversation around a table with my peers that's professionally facilitated that I can actually be honest about without a funder sitting there as well. Yeah. So then we started asking questions. And how often do our nonprofit leaders get together? Tends to be maybe quarterly, sometimes annually. And who coordinates that? Tends to be funders. Well, if I'm an executive director and I'm burnt out, and my funder is sitting at the table who's going to have me up for a grant renewal in a year or two years or six months. I'm not going to be talking about it. I'm really thinking about leaving the space. No way. <laughs> the right? impossible happens. Becky clams up. You know, that hardly ever <laughs> happens, but I get it. Right. So it, there's a distinct power dynamic that we know exists. So we've created them to be confidential to, to do that. The, the need for community, though, John, back to your original question, what we're trying to do. Our sector is one of the only spaces that doesn't have what I call real-time unfiltered data, right? So if you look at retail, they provide data metrics all times. If you look at restaurants, they provide it, competitors, et cetera. Manufacturing, the list goes on and on until we get to the nonprofit space, right? Somebody every five years will commission a study, back to the Chronicle of Philanthropy, back to the Haas Junior Fund, and we get some data. Otherwise, it's very much 
grantee procession reports, et cetera. And I'm all for that. I'm glad the funders do that. But that doesn't actually give us access to real-time data that can, we can say and put a finger on the pulse on what's going on. What's going on in the DFW region versus San Francisco versus Seattle versus New York versus Atlanta? What's going on in my early education nonprofits? What's going on with my BIPOC-led nonprofits, et cetera, that you can filter? And the only way to do that, in my opinion, is to come at this from a different lens. People have tried to build this data set from a macro perspective. We're trying to do it from the other perspective. If we can build our peer groups, so my group of 12 that I provide real value in, and I start to do this in multiple regions across the country, how long until we have you know, 1,000, 2,500, 5,000 members who are meeting consistently? We're an independent third party, right? We are neutral. We are Switzerland. We are not a funder. You have safety when you actually give honest, candid feedback that we can elevate the voice and we can start to talk about some of these things consistently. Right? Is that a quarterly? Here's a uh, perception report of what's going on. It takes it takes a larger community, right? It's hard to do with just a you know a couple hundred. So it actually takes a, a, a statistically significant number. But I believe we can get there, and I think that starts to drive change. That starts to allow us to elevate the voices of our nonprofits. So it's not just one voice yelling into the wind. It's actually lifting all of the voices in a very candid conversation to try to drive change across the sector. Brian Joseph. I am handing you this rose because I, I'm literally he handing you. has a rose. I do. My Valentine's rose is almost dead. I am handing you a rose to tell you, can you please find 100 people? No, 10,000 people just like you who think in that way, who believe in that way, who are setting up structures in that way, because that is the way that the sector begins to shift. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that this is, and Bob, God bless Bob for talking about what he needs because he voiced the needs of, you know, almost 2 million nonprofits here in the U.S. alone. And so I, I thank you for the challenge of thinking differently, of operating differently, of thinking about how to take care of human beings and not just those that we're serving in the mission, but the people who are on the front lines. So thank you for this. I absolutely love your company. I love your ethos. I just think you are one of the great oracles of the nonprofit sector right now. And I'm wondering, we just believe in the power of story so deeply on this podcast that it connects us and binds us. Is there a story of philanthropy that you've experienced that has really stayed with you and changed you? Uh. Such a good question. First of all, you all are part of that story, right? Like, I mean, come on, everything that you do and everything every day. So this is the, the community that we're trying to reach. Thank you. Thank you. I can give you a thousand stories because every time I get to talk to any nonprofit leader, I just am energized. And that's the thing that, I mean, you all know this. You talk to them all the time, right? When you meet them and you hear their personal stories, it's so invigorating. But there's probably one thing that stuck with me. And I was actually uh, in college. So I was in a speech class and I had to do a two-minute extemporaneous speech. And like every good you know, sophomore in college at the time, I didn't prepare. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I'm like, hey, it's an extemporaneous speech. I used to do extemporaneous debate in high school. So I was like, I could do this. And I got up and, and I did my two-minute speech on random acts of kindness Aww. and the importance of random acts of kindness. And I remember it was a smaller class. And I used to sit next to a non-traditional student, a gentleman who was in his early 40s trying to finish up his degree. Just got to know him a little bit, right? Like, and I, I don't recall his name. But after that speech, I never saw him again. I was like, what happened? You know, what went on? This, that, and the other. And then about a year later, I was in a uh, Barnes and Noble bookshop and I went around the corner and there he was. I was like, hey, how you doing? He goes, oh my goodness. He goes, Brian, he goes, you changed my life. 
I said, whoa, I'm like 19 years old. I'm like, dude, I didn't change your life. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) He's like, no. He goes, when you talked about random acts of kindness in that speech that you did, he goes, I reflected on that. And it just told me I was on the wrong path. And I changed my career trajectory. It gave me clarity. And it was your speech was random act of kindness towards me. And it stuck with me, not in the aspect of that philanthropy. It stuck with me in the aspect of we all never know what difference that we're actually going to have on somebody else. And in our space, especially, right? It's the drop in the pebble. And I have a friend of mine who his logo for his foundation is that the the ripples that go out. And I think that's the biggest thing from a story for philanthropy. We don't know the impact that we're going to have with our missions and who we serve, the people that we have conversations with. It could be a funder, but by having those stories and just sharing journeys and sharing perspectives. It's how we all have conversations. And as humans, it's like you said, Becky, the story starts to, to make a difference. And that one's always stuck with me. It's just how do we do those random acts of kindness as well? And we never know where they land. Holy heck. And it's like, I think, especially as you show up generously in life. And I think that that's the first time, you know, we met you, I don't know, at least a year ago, the first time we just chatted on the phone and we just shared that ethos of just feeling seen and feeling supported and feeling like we have a cheerleader in somebody that we were just meeting. And I think that that ripple comes when you show up like that. So love that you're still creating those moments, at least for us over here, feeling your ripple um, of kindness. So, you know, we round out all of our conversations with a one good thing. You've given me one, two, three pages of notes. Sean's been taking notes. Now, my book is, is short, but I have literally had three pages of this today. But if you can sum it, give us one thing to just kind of ponder. Maybe this is a piece of advice or a hack. Um, what's your one good thing, Brian? John, I don't know if I have any one good things. <laughs> Take something no, from that random act of kindness speech. Yeah, I think right? it's going to be really powerful. Something. You know, I think uh, for me, it's just for our, our listeners and for you all, I mean, just keep doing what you're doing, right? It's hard. There's low days, there's high days, but just the perseverance and the, and the resilience that you see every day, you're doing great work. You know, back to the random acts of kindness. You don't know where the impact's going to be. Keep doing it. Find your community. Be vulnerable. Talk about the things that we're, we oftentimes don't talk about. That's been hard for me as well. Um, but that's the, that's the biggest thing of advice is just, you're not alone. Trust me. Like, Everybody out there struggling with this, you are not alone. And together, we will figure it out. Ugh. Oh, and I will say, really not only are you not alone, but you're in a community of people who are rooting for you. Like we are actively wanting you to succeed. We want to hear what's holding you back. We want to hear what's challenging you because we want to go find a solution or a framework or a tool that helps that thing. So um, thank you for just that call to link arms. I think that really resonates with us. One of our trends this year is lock arms for impact because we can run faster together, you know, low ego, high impact. And that's what we're trying to do. So thank you, Brian, so much for just the wisdom you've brought. Tell people how they can connect with you, how they can find RevGen, and give us all the links. Perfect. So you can reach me, uh, B Joseph, B J O S E P H at RevGen, R E V J E N group.com uh, or RevGen.com, R E V J E N.com. LinkedIn, you can look me up, but definitely. And thank you both. Like, are you kidding me? What you all do is phenomenal. I love it. I'm, I'm glad we were finally able to make this work and honored that y'all chose to have me on. We need to hang again next time we in do. person. <laughs> we'll drive honor. down do your you. way. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> You're a treasure of a you. human. Appreciate you. <laughs> Likewise. Hey friends, thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. 
We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free. And you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing. If you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.